Chapter 4 of The Rome Express This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman The Rome Express by Arthur Griffiths Chapter 4 He had other work to do and was eager to get at it. So he left Block to show the Countess back to the waiting-room, and, motioning to the porter that he might also go, the chief hastened to the sleeping-car, the examination of which, too long delayed, claimed his urgent attention. It is the first duty of a good detective to visit the actual theater of a crime and overhaul it inch by inch, seeking, searching, investigating, looking for any, even the most insignificant, traces of the murderer's hands. The sleeping car, as I have said, had been sidetracked, its doors were sealed, and it was under strict watch and ward. But everything, of course, gave way before the detective, and, breaking through the seals, he walked in, making straight for the little room or compartment where the body of the victim still lay untended and absolutely untouched. It was a ghastly sight, although not new in Monsieur Vlasson's experience. There lay the corpse in the narrow berth, just as it had been stricken. It was partially undressed, wearing only shirt and drawers. The former lay open at the chest, and showed the gaping wound that had, no doubt, caused death, probably instantaneous death. But other blows had been struck. There must have been a struggle, fierce and embittered, as for dear life. The savage truculence of the murderer had triumphed, but not until he had battered in the face, destroying features and rendering recognition almost impossible. A knife had given the mortal wound. That was at once apparent from the shape of the wound. It was the knife, too, which had gashed and stabbed the face, almost wantonly, for some of these wounds had not bled, and the plain inference was that they had been inflicted after life had sped. Monsieur Flesson examined the body closely, but without disturbing it. The police medical officer would wish to see it as it was found. The exact position, as well as the nature of the wounds, might afford evidence as to the manner of death. But the chief looked long, and with absorbed, concentrated interest, at the murdered man, noting all he actually saw, and conjecturing a good deal more. The features of the mutilated face were all but unrecognizable, but the hair, which was abundant, was long, black, and inclined to curl. The black mustache was thick and drooping. The shirt was of fine linen, the drawers silk. On one finger were two good rings. The hands were clean, the nails well kept, and there was every evidence that the man did not live by manual labor. He was of the easy, cultured class, as distinct from the workman or operative. This conclusion was borne out by his light baggage, which still lay about the berth. Hat-box, rugs, umbrella, brown Morocco handbag. All were the property of someone well-to-do, or at least possessed of decent belongings. One of the two pieces bore a monogram, F. Q, the same as on the shirt and underlinen, but on the bag was a luggage label with the name Francis Quadling, passenger to Paris, in full. 
Its owner had apparently no reason to conceal his name. More strangely, those who had done him to death had been at no pains to remove all traces of his identity. Monsieur Flasson opened the handbag, seeking for further evidence, but found nothing of importance, only loose collars, cuffs, a sponge and slippers, two Italian newspapers of an earlier date. No money, valuables, or papers. All these had been removed, probably, and presumably, by the perpetrator of the crime. Having settled the first preliminary but essential points, he next surveyed the whole compartment critically. Now, for the first time, he was struck with the fact that the window was open to its full height. Since when was this? It was a question to be put presently to the porter and any others who had entered the car, but the discovery drew him to examine the window more closely and with good results. At the ledge, caught on a projecting point on the far side, partly in, partly out of the car, was a morsel of white lace, a scrap of feminine apparel, although what part or how it had come there was not at once obvious to Monsieur Vlosson. A long and minute inspection of this bit of lace, which he was careful not to detach as yet from the place in which he found it, showed that it was ragged and frayed and fast caught where it hung. It could not have been blown there by any chance air. It must have been torn from the article to which it belonged, whatever that might be, headdress, nightcap, nightdress, or handkerchief. The lace was of a kind to serve any of these purposes. Inspecting further, Monsieur Vlasson made a second discovery. On the small table under the window was a short length of black jet beading, part of the trimming or ornamentation of a lady's dress. These two objects of feminine origin, one partly outside the car, the other near it, but quite inside, gave rise to many conjectures. It led, however, to the inevitable conclusion that a woman had been at some time or other in the berth. Monsieur Vlasson could not but connect these two finds with the fact of the open window. The latter might, of course, have been the work of the murdered man himself at an earlier hour. Yet it is unusual, as the detective imagined, for a passenger, and especially an Italian, to lie under an open window in a sleeping berth when traveling by express train before daylight in March. Who opened that window, then? And why? Perhaps some further facts might be found on the outside of the car. With this idea, Monsieur Vlasson left it, and passed on to the line, or permanent way. Here he found himself a good deal below the level of the car. These sleepers have no footboards like ordinary carriages. Access to them is gained from a platform by the steps at each end. The chief was short of stature and he could only approach the window outside by calling one of the guards and ordering him to make the small ladder, faire la petite échelle. This meant stooping and giving a back, on which little Monsieur Flasson climbed nimbly, and so was raised to the necessary height. A close scrutiny revealed nothing unusual. The exterior of the car was encrusted with the mud and dust gathered in the journey, none of which appeared to have been disturbed. Monsieur Vlasson re-entered the carriage, neither disappointed nor pleased. His mind was in an open state, ready to receive any impressions, and as yet only one that was at all clear and distinct was borne in on him. 
This was the presence of the lace and the jet beads in the theater of the crime. The inference was fair and simple. He came logically and surely to this. Number one, that some woman had entered the compartment. Number two, that whether or not she had come in before the crime, she was there after the window had been opened, which was not done by the murdered man. Number three, that she had leaned out, or partly passed out, of the window at some time or other, as the scrap of lace testified. Number four, why had she leaned out? To seek some means of exit or escape, of course. But escape from whom? From what? The murderer? Then she must know him, and unless an accomplice, if so, why run from him? She would give up her knowledge on compulsion, if not voluntarily, as seemed doubtful, seeing she, his suspicions were consolidating, had not done so already. But there might be another even stronger reason to attempt escape at such imminent risk as leaving an express train at full speed. To escape from her own act and the consequences it must entail, escape from horror first, from detection next, and then from arrest and punishment. All this would imperiously impel even a weak woman to face the worst peril, to look out, lean out, even try the terrible but impossible feat of climbing out of the car. So, Monsieur Blesson, by fair process of reasoning, reached a point which incriminated one woman, the only woman possible, and that was the titled, high-bred lady who called herself the Contessa di Castagnito. This conclusion gave a definite direction to further search. Consulting the rough plan which he had constructed to take the place of the missing train card, he entered the compartment which the Countess had occupied, and which was actually next door. It was in the tumbled, untidy condition of a sleeping place, but just vacated. The sex and quality of its recent occupant were plainly apparent in the goods and chattels lying about the property and possessions of a delicate, well-bred woman of the world, things still left as she had used them last, rugs still unrolled, a pair of easy slippers on the floor, the sponge in its waterproof bag on the bed, brushes, bottles, button-hook, hand-glass, many things belonging to the dressing-bag, not yet returned to that receptacle. The maid was no doubt to have attended to all these, but as she had not come, they remained unpacked and strewn about in some disorder. Monsieur Vlasson pounced down upon the contents of the berth, and commenced an immediate search for a lace scarf, or any wrap or cover with lace. He found nothing, and was hardly disappointed. It told more against the countess, who, if innocent, would have no reason to conceal or make away with a possibly incriminating possession the need for which she could not, of course, understand. Next, he handled the dressing-bag, and with deft fingers replaced everything. Everything was forthcoming but one glass bottle, a small one, the absence of which he noted, but thought of little consequence, till, by and by, he came upon it under peculiar circumstances. Before leaving the car, and after walking through the other compartments, Monsieur Vlasson made an especially strict search of the corner where the porter had his own small chair, his only resting place, indeed, throughout the journey. He had not forgotten the attendant's condition when first examined, 
and he had even then been nearly satisfied that the man had been hocused, narcoticized, drugged. Any doubts were entirely removed by his picking up near the porter's seat a small silver-topped bottle and a handkerchief, both marked with coronet and monogram, the last of which, although the letters were much interlaced and involved, were decipherable as S-L-L-C. It was that of the countess, and corresponded with the marks on her other belongings. He put it to his nostril, and recognized at once by its smell that it had contained tincture of laudanum, or some preparation of that drug. End of chapter 4 Recording by Robert Hoffman